the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to today's edition of The Plumb Line, brought to you by Reasons for Hope, training and equipping a new generation to stand boldly on the Word of God. You can find information about them at r4h.com. That's the letter R, then F-O-R-H.com. I'm your host, Jay Rudolph, and on the broadcast today, I'll wrap up my visit with Bodie Hodge of Answers in Genesis, discussing creation from a biblical worldview. You can reach me anytime at this email, theplumlineradio at gmail.com. Stay tuned. Support for The Plum Line is provided by these fine business sponsors. EPS Wealth Management of Phoenix, who serves clients in several states. Call them for a no-cost, no-obligation conversation about your financial concerns. 623-537-3657. Support for The Plum Line is also provided by Simple Turn. Their online health resources teach your kids how health really works and how to avoid 90% of chronic disease. Get your family's free health course at mysimpleturn.com. And by Charles McLucas, Jr., founder and CEO of Charitable Trust Administrators, Inc. Learn about the benefits of a charitable remainder trust at ctai-ca.com. On today's edition of The Plum Line, my guest is Bodie Hodge of Answers in Genesis, part two of our series on young earth creation. I'm going to start off this segment by discussing who did the creating. According to the scriptures, our triune God, God the Father, Jesus the Son, the Holy Spirit, all were involved in the creation. But I want to just kind of make it clear that it's not just some that would want to say, well, that's just an Old Testament thing, but the New Testament never refers to God doing creating. Well, that would be, couldn't be further from the truth here. So I'll just share, yeah, I'll share one verse quickly out of dozens we could bring up and have you maybe comment on this and and just that question in general. Colossians chapter one is a great chapter to go to to answer that, but it says, for by him, him with a capital H, at least in the translation I'm reading here, all things were created both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. So in other words, we're not just talking about the, the physical things of the universe here, but just even concepts like thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities, all these things, visible and invisible, have been created by him. So that should answer that question, but take that a little farther if you would. <laughs> yeah, it really does. You know, sometimes people want to divide the Bible up, but, uh, you know, Old Testament, New Testament, this is all God's Word. It is all authoritative, and there's no greater authority than God. I, I want people to, to just step back and consider this concept for a moment. There is no greater authority than God. So when someone says, well, you know, I don't believe Genesis, or, well, I don't believe Jesus is the Creator, by what authority can they object to God's absolute authority? Anytime they do that, they're actually appealing to man as being an authority greater than God. That's a faulty appeal to authority fallacy right off the bat, anytime someone objects to the Bible. But when you go back to the Bible, Old Testament, New Testament, God is the Creator. I mean, yes, you see it in Genesis chapter 1. You also see it in Deuteronomy 32, uh, verse 6. You you see uh, God being the Creator in Hebrews 2.10. Um, you know, if you just look specifically at Jesus, I know you bring up the passage in Colossians, but really, I always think John 1, Colossians 1, Hebrews 1, all three of those 
are pointing to the creative activities of uh, the Lord Jesus Christ. But, you know, sometimes people forget that the Holy Spirit is called the Creator as well. Now, these are both in the Old Testament, Job 33, 4, for example, and Psalm 104, verse 30. Both of those call the Holy Spirit the Creator. And, you know, you see all three persons of the one triune God right there being represented as Creator. So, yes, when we think of creation, we need to think of God. He is the authority. He is the one with the power to do the creating in the first place. Now, I've had people say, ah, oh, but what about Satan? He's got a lot of power. To... Now, he has no power next to God. Sometimes people have this false view of trying to put God and Satan up here as equal and opposite. No, not at all. Satan has no power next to God at all. The only thing he can try to do is do a counterfeit, a fake of what God can actually do in creation. So those are uh, little things that I've uh, had to deal with a lot out in the culture. People, you know, they, they misconstrue who Satan is, too. So they'll misconstrue who God is, they'll misconstrue who Satan is. But we need to step back and remember, God is God, and there is no one even remotely close to God. Satan himself is a created being. He was also created perfect. He fell into sin as well. The difference with Satan and with man is man as the possibility of salvation through the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Satan does not. And uh, those are things we need to remember. Yeah. Well, I wasn't going to go there, but since you brought up Satan, you stepped into it here, and um, we'll ask that question that probably a lot of people are wanting me to ask, and that is, so why did God create Satan then? Because he obviously knew what was going to happen. Yeah, of course. God knows all things. He also knew mankind was going to fall. He also had a plan the entire time. So when we think about Satan, God, like with mankind, he gave angels, Satan, the power of contrite choice. And Satan, he fell away. There were elect angels that did not fall away. So he gave them that freedom of thought. And when we think of mankind, you know, mankind was not created as robots either. We were given that freedom to follow God or to disobey God. And in Adam and Eve's case, of course, they disobeyed God. And we've all disobeyed God as well. You know, I've had people ask a similar question and say, hey, well, you know, when we get to heaven, will we sin then? You know, and that's an interesting question. In fact, I, I work with our local school here that's associated with Answers in Genesis and the Ark and the Creation Museum, and that's a top question I get from kids. Will I sin in heaven? And well, first off, it's eternal life. So you're going to have eternal life with God. But at the same time, we need to remember, Adam led us into sin. But now Jesus Christ, who all authority and all dominion and all power have been given to him upon the resurrection here, he's retained all that glory, brought it all back to him. He's God. He cannot sin. So he will not lead us back into sin. We will never sin in heaven in that sense to fall away. We will never lose that. That's why God can confidently state we have eternal life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's so interesting to me to think that, uh, you know, in everything, God has a purpose and a plan. So even in the creation of Satan and having that foreknowledge of what would happen, he had a purpose and a plan uh, in all of that. That's just mind-boggling to think of that. Yeah, I wrote an entire book called The Fall of Satan. It deals with a lot of the questions that, that people ask about Satan, the fall, and so forth. A lot of things going on right there in Genesis chapter 3. Mm. Well, that's a good one to refer to. In fact, uh, since you brought that up there, the AnswersInGenesis.org website, is that where people can find uh, your books and things too? Yeah, if they go to AnswersInGenesis.org, that's the easy way to find them. And uh, you just type in books, Bodie Hodge, and you'll see I have quite a few books on there. 
or if they come to the Creation Museum of the Ark Encounter, a lot of the books that I've got are featured there in the bookstore. So, oh, Bodie, I wanted to ask a little bit about why you believe it is that there is such a strong holding to the evolutionary view amongst so many scientists and prominent ones, of course, in particular, and that they try to force everyone else into that dogma as well. Wow, that's a big question, actually. <laughs> you know, myself, you know, I'm a, a mechanical engineer, material scientist. You know, so I was right in the middle of all that. You know, I used to teach at a university. I used to work at Caterpillar. Um, you know, I worked side by side with evolutionists. And uh, uh, sometimes there were Christians who bought into an old earth worldview. There were other times, you know, where I just worked with the atheistic evolutionists. But uh, here's the thing. You know, we actually all agree on a lot of aspects of science the observable, repeatable science. Where we disagree is when we go back into the past and we have different understandings of origins. And that's where that battle is. In fact, a lot of Christians do buy into this secular worldview. Let me explain this secular worldview, where it came from, though, first off. Because if you look back in the past, most cultures around the world actually believed in a relatively young age of the earth, even from their own histories. And that makes sense. As uh, Noah's family goes to different parts of the world, after the events at the Tower of Babel, they took creation with them, and they had these corrupted creation legends, corrupted flood legends, and so forth. We expect that. But it wasn't until about the late 17, early 1800s, that's when this modern movement of millions and billions of years and the secular humanistic worldview really started to dominate. If you go back to 1779, Buffon estimated the age of the Earth at 78,000 years, and people thought he was crazy. They're like, who could even imagine that amount of time? People thought he was just way out there. But in 1786, a man named Abraham Warner, uh, he taught a lot of early geologists, by the way. He said the age of the Earth was about a million years old. Now, his influence in the geological world influenced a lot of later geologists. Uh, one of the people who were later uh, influenced by him was Charles Lyell in the 1830s. He wrote three books called The Principles of Geology, where he declared rock layers being evidence of slow, gradual accumulations over millions of years instead of being evidence of a global flood. Now, see, that's where the battle's at. The battle's actually over rock layers. A lot of people don't realize that. Do the rock layers come from a global flood that was recorded in Genesis 6, 7, and 8, or were they laid down slowly and gradually over millions and billions of years with no major catastrophes? That's where the battle over the age of the Earth actually comes from. That's the big difference between millions of years and, say, a young Earth or a biblical worldview. It's that battle over that timing. In fact, people did not believe the age of the Earth was even in the billions of years until the 1900s. 1913 is when Arthur Holmes first proposed radiometric dating. He declared the age of the Earth at 1.6 billion years. But here's where it culminates. In 1956, Claire Patterson radiometrically dated a group of meteorites that didn't even come from the Earth, and he assumed those meteorites formed the same time as the Earth, and he declared the age of the Earth 4.5 billion years using radiometric dating methods. Of course, for those who are not familiar with radiometric dating methods, you can get just about any date you want on just about any sample. It all depends on the assumptions you fill out. They believed in an old Earth worldview. They filled out the assumptions to get a calculation that does that. I could do the same thing and get a calculation very young, uh, just depending on the assumptions that we get. But I think what's happening is a lot of Christians are intimidated by the secular world. They have this academic pride. They don't want to be seen as oh, wow, I'm a Bible thumper, I believe the Bible. And so they buy into this secular worldview, and what's ultimately happening then are Christians are mixing their Christianity with the secular humanistic religion. Like I said, I don't say that lightly because I struggle with that myself. 
what I was doing was taking, well, here's what I read in the Bible. You know, well, let me give up some of the stuff here in Genesis. Let me come over here to this Big Bang Evolution Millions of Years worldview. And let me just mix the two together, and I'll just pick and choose the stuff that I want to follow from the Bible and what I want to follow from the world. That's called syncretism. Uh, a lot of times it's just called compromise. You're compromising God's Word for a secular religion. And I want to encourage people, step back, go back to the Bible. Remember, there's no greater authority than God in His Word. God is the ultimate authority. Trust what God has to say in the book of Genesis. That's mm. where we need to get back to. Yeah. So in essence, if I'm following that correctly, we need to start with the Word of God and build our understanding of science and the creation of the world and all those things from that, whereas there are those many today, especially in the scientific community, unfortunately, who start with their own view, their own beliefs, their worldview, which is is based on, as you say, secular humanism, and then they'll take a look at the Word of God and say, no, this can't possibly be true. That's kind of the equation we're looking at, right? Yeah, what we need to do is just step back and let God be God and build our worldview from that. In fact, most fields of science were actually developed by Bible believers who followed what the Bible said. Uh, You know, you look back at some of these great scientists, Faraday or Newton or Gauss and so forth. These guys were all standing on the Bible going, oh, wow, okay, let's start with the Bible and uh, look at this oil and so forth. I, I, I absolutely love studying where most fields of science came from. It actually comes out of a biblical worldview. What's happened now is people have now rejected the Bible out of that, and they want to try to attach the secular humanistic worldview to science, and that's confused a lot of people. Mm. And that really wreaked havoc in our educational system, too. Let's get into that a little bit here, because this anti-creation movement, if I can call it that, took over the schools, in essence, from kindergarten or preschool all the way through university level. And kids are now being indoctrinated with evolution through all their school years, as I see it. Yeah, it really has. In fact, a lot of people don't realize that the public education system actually came out of the church. You go back to Robert Rakes in the 1700s, he started to develop the Sunday school system that we all have, and the Sunday school system then developed into a week-long public school, essentially, and what it was is those were an outreach of the church to train people, and uh, the government saw the benefit in all this. They're like, wow, this is taking ruffians and turning them into great people, <laughs> good productive members of society, they're learning science and history, and and it was wonderful the Bible was used in the classroom. But then the state was funding all this, so the churches no longer had to deal with a lot of this. They're letting the state take care of it. As this secular worldview becomes more and more popular in the 1800s and 1900s, the Bible then started getting taken out of that. And I want people to realize when the Bible was ultimately kicked out of the classroom and prayer was kicked out, the Ten Commandments were kicked out, they didn't kick religion out. They replaced it with the godless religion of secular humanism, which dominates. I still have textbooks that tell me that me and this frog are no different. We're basically the same thing. We both evolved uh, ultimately from pond scum. I still have those textbooks from when I was in grade school that taught those types of things. That worldview, that religion has just permeated a lot of our education system. And a lot of teachers struggle with, uh, you know, how do I deal with this? A lot of times they don't realize they're teaching a religion in the classroom, but there it is right there in the textbook. So uh, we really need to be discerning. We need to get back to God and His Word. Yeah, let's talk about how that has affected not just the broad aspect of the culture, but people, individuals. We're talking about kids here, individual children that are all created by God and loved by God, and yet they are being impacted and influenced by this godless system. And how does that make them think and and feel and, and things like that when they're taught these things? 
Well, when they're taught a religion that's not the Bible, they suddenly become no absolute, anything goes, there's no morality, and we're seeing the fruits of all that. You know, I was there when at least the Bible was respected by a lot of teachers. Now, our librarian wouldn't allow a Bible in our library, I remember that. But, you know, nowadays, I mean, the Bible's openly attacked in hosts of different classrooms, and now different outworkings of a secular humanistic worldview are dominating our classrooms. Take, for example, the religion of sexual humanism. Sexual humanism is an outworking. It's a, you know, it's like a denomination of secular humanism, if you will. And uh, that deals with uh, the whole LGBT movement, you know, the transgender uh, things that are going on inside of classrooms. Kids are being drilled with this because they've been taught that secular humanistic worldview, and now they're going in this particular variation because they've been taught that religion as well, usually in a lot of classrooms, you know, right there uh, from a very young age. So we're seeing the outworking, we're seeing the fruit of that religion in a lot of different ways. I've had a lot of parents, particularly Christian parents, that say, I don't even know where to start. Where do I deal with this? You know, and of course, we've written books, The Gender and Marriage War, that deal with that. You know, we've got books like Glasshouse that deal with the evolutionary arguments that are used inside the classroom. We've actually got an entire book series, a three-volume set on world religions and cults. One entire volume is dedicated to dealing with all these secular religions, atheism, agnosticism, secular humanism, naturalism, materialism. These are all in a classroom. These are all in textbooks. They're all in museums. Our kids are being drilled with this type of stuff, and sometimes parents don't even know where to start. What they need to do is step back and realize there's only two religions in the world. Don't people don't understand this. Don't get, don't get confused at everything that's floating around out there. There's only two religions in the world, gods and not gods. And if it doesn't come from God, one way or another, it comes through the mind of man. That is humanism in its broadest sense. From there, whether you go over to something like Hinduism or Buddhism or New Age or atheism, in every instance, man's ideas have been elevated to supersede God and his word, to take people away from God and his word. And as a result, those types of religions are dominating our culture. Hmm. I really appreciate that uh, insight. I haven't heard it quite described that way. So thank you very much. Bodhi Hodge, my guest from Answers in Genesis. And we'll continue with more here. Lots of other aspects, in fact. That's why they have multiple day-long seminars on Young Earth Creationism. So we're not going to get all the way through this. We're kind of scratching the surface. But I appreciate uh, Bodhi's thoughts here. And we'll continue with more from him. I want to remind you that the Plum Line is a listener-supported radio ministry. You can reach out to me to learn how you can support by emailing Radio at gmail. I'm also just had this thought drop in my mind that one of the best ways to learn more on this subject, maybe the best way, is to go to the Creation Museum. So make plans to take that trip to uh, Kentucky and see the Creation Museum, the Ark Encounter, and you can learn a lot more on this subject in just a couple of days out there. Well, I'll continue with Bodie Hodge in just a bit. Stay tuned to The Plum Line. When it comes to education for your student, Northwest Christian School believes that trusted truth transforms. With that in mind, they develop their fully online Christian school, NCS Online, for your kindergarten through ninth grade student. NCS Online curriculum has been developed in-house by experienced Christian educators and is infused with a biblical worldview. NCS Online provides a rigorous, affordable, customizable online education in an established Christian community and culture. Visit ncsonline.org to learn more or contact their admissions team at 602-978-5134. 
This is The Plumb Line. I'm your host, Jay Rudolph. On today's broadcast, we're talking about young earth creationism from a biblical worldview. My guest is Bodie Hodge of Answers in Genesis. And I shared at the end of the last segment that you might want to take a trip out there to the Kentucky area and take in the Creation Museum, the Ark Encounter. That would be a great thing to do with the family. And you can get a lot more a knowledge and insight into this topic that we're talking about uh, when you go there. Well, Bodhi, you have the opportunity and privilege to speak there. Certainly one thing that comes up a lot is just why is it that we believe that the earth was created several thousand years ago and in six days specifically? And so I want to get into that six days component here. We've talked about the thousands of years rather than millions and billions of years, but we haven't really addressed the six-day component. There are those who, and there are lots of different philosophies that we won't have time to get into all the different uh, philosophies here. You brought up some of those gap theory and day age and all those things. But in essence, there are those who hold that, well, couldn't each day be like a million years or a few million years to help us to get to that point? And again, when you're doing that, you're starting with trying to fit the Bible into the prevailing worldly scientific views instead of starting with the Bible. So that we're going right back to that problem we talked about before there, aren't we? Yeah, we really are. You know, trying to reconcile, trying to mix two different religions, and we really shouldn't have to do that. You know, if you go back to, you know, Genesis chapter 1, God creates everything in six days. That Hebrew word used for day is the Hebrew word yom. It has multiple meanings. It can mean the daylight portion of a day. It can be a 24-hour day, or it could be like a period of time. But the key is always the context. For example, if I did this in English, if I said, Back in my grandfather's day, it took 12 days to drive across the country during the day. You know, I used the word day three times, and yet you understood all three of the meanings of that day. It's the same sort of thing in Hebrew with that Hebrew word yom. When you actually read it in context, you know, when it has a number, it means a 24-hour day. If it means, you know, day versus night, you know, it's the daylight portion of the day and so forth. So when you actually go back and you look at Genesis chapter 1, when you read it, it is clearly talking about a 24-hour day, and this is not a problem for an all-powerful God. I've had some people say, ah, but a day is like a thousand years. They want to quote Second Peter chapter 3, or maybe even Psalm 90. But, you know, number one, let's just say a day really was a thousand years. You're not going to get four and a half billion years for the age of the earth, or 13 to 15 billion years for the age of the universe. It just doesn't help you, number one. But if you go back and look at the context of Second Peter 3, or Psalm 90, it's talking about God not being bound by time. You know, God is patient. He's not wanting people to perish, but to come to repent. So people are taking that out of context to try to look at the days of creation. You know, another big problem that I've seen over and over again, and this is a huge problem, actually. If you want to take millions and billions of years, and you want to put it in the Bible somewhere, people always go back before Adam. So they're trying to put millions and billions of years somewhere in the creation week. And so then they want to reinterpret the creation week to be all sorts of things. Some people want to put a gap between Genesis 1, 1, 1, 2, just put all the millions of years in there and so they don't have to deal with it. Or they want to stretch the days out to be millions and billions of years. Or they just want to totally reinterpret it, just put big bang millions of years evolution in there and just throw out Genesis uh, chapter 1. But here's the huge problem you get every single time. If you put millions and billions of years into Genesis chapter 1, you have a theological problem called death before sin. Because remember, this idea millions and millions of years comes from rock layers. And what do you see in the rock layers all around the world? We see evidence of death. You see animals eating other animals. You see evidence of cancer and tuberculosis and uh, just all sorts of just dead things in these rock layers. 
And if we try to take those rock layers, put them into Genesis chapter 1, here's the problem. At the end of the creation week, God declared everything very good. Deuteronomy 32, 4 said every work of God is perfect. We now have a huge problem because now God is calling death something good. Death is not good. Cancer is not good. Death is actually the punishment for sin, according to Genesis 2.17. That's why we die, because of sin. That's why we need a Savior to save us from death. It's because death is the punishment for sin. So if you put millions of years of rock layers of death prior to Adam sinning, we just defeated the whole purpose of death being the punishment for sin to Adam. It is a huge theological problem. So those are just a handful of issues. When we dive into this, there are real big issues of trying to take the days of creation and turn them into some sort of millions of years format. You run into theological problems, you run into scientific problems, you're not treating the text in context. So yeah, you run into a lot of issues. The key is get back to God in his world. Mm, great. I only have another minute or so left, so I'm bringing up something that may take longer than that. But I did <laughs> want to uh, touch on this real briefly, those six days and then resting on the seventh. I guess the way I, I view this is God is a God of order. And so one of the things that I believe he was doing with this process of six days and resting on the seventh is establishing order. And we look at the work week that we have today, and there's a reason why we have the work week that we have. And so just comment briefly on that, if you could. Yeah, that's exactly right. You know, God created in six days. He rests on the seventh. That's the basis for a week. Cultures all over the world, even atheists, they celebrate a weekend. That's ultimately where a weekend comes from. It comes from the scriptures. It comes from God resting on the seventh day and then the Lord's day being the first day of the week. That's where a weekend comes from. So, you know, even a week comes from scripture. So when people celebrate a week, whether they realize it or not, they're actually borrowing from God and his word. Mm, that's fantastic. Uh, well, we could carry on a lot more, certainly here, Bodie, but I sure appreciate you being with me. And I do hope we get to chat in the future about some other subjects. But thanks for joining me on the Plum Line. You bet, Jay. God bless you and keep up the great work. Bodie Hodge from Answers in Genesis has been my guest on this edition of the Plum Line. I hope you have enjoyed this discussion about young earth creation. And, you know, you can share any topic ideas or guest ideas with me. I would love to hear from you on that. And maybe you even have some questions that we didn't have time to get to here. And hopefully if I can have Bodie on again in the future, we can address some of those. Send me some questions that you would like me to ask. Radio at gmail.com is the email address. Remember, Plum has a B, P-L-U-M-B. So it's Radio at gmail.com. Thanks for tuning in. The Plum Line has been sponsored by Reasons for Hope. Check them out at r4h.com. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.